Hey, Matthew Norrie here, the host of the Happy Habit Podcast, talking health and well-being every Monday and every Thursday. Please consider subscribing and sharing. And while you are here, please check out some of the previous episodes in our Happy Habit Archive. Well, given the testing times we live in with all of its stressors, its ups and its downs, it will be a source of comfort to people to find out that we can train our brains to be happy. It's a subject of a fascinating book entitled Habits of a Happy Brain, subtitled Retrain Your Brain. The book's author was the Professor Emeritus of Management at the California State University for all of 22 years and in 2013 she founded the Inner Mammal Institute which runs courses to help you manage your brain and your brain chemicals and these resources have helped thousands of people manage their brains. Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, Cosmopolitan Magazine, NPR and numerous podcasts and I am thrilled to extend the Happy Habit podcast welcome to Professor Loretta Bruning who joins me all the way from California today. Thank you so much for making time for me today. Thanks, so nice to be here. So let's dive right in. We may very well be human but we are also mammals. And our ups and downs are subjected to the release of chemicals in our brains. And the ultimate purpose of these chemicals is essentially to keep us alive. Is to promote survival. And that means happy chemicals are to reward survival behavior. They're not designed to just flow all the time for no reason. And that's the opposite of the impression we get from the current disease model that normal people are happy all the time. And if you're not happy all the time, you must have a disease. But in fact, the happy chemicals are only meant to turn on for short spurts to motivate that survival behavior. And then they're quickly metabolized. And that's why we have ups and downs. And that's why we have this treadmill feeling because you always have to do more to get more. We mentioned just there in the introduction, we have brain chemicals, we have dopamine, endorphins, oxytocin, serotonin, all produced by the brain and each producing a different good feeling and stimulating a different reward. Can you tell us a little bit more about those individually? Yes, we've inherited these chemicals from animals. So my focus is on the job these chemicals do in animals because animals don't have a cortex that can make abstractions. And I call the cortex your internal public relations agency that can always come up with good explanations for why you do what you do and why you feel what you feel, but animals can't do that. So we see in animals what behavior is motivated by that chemical and what good feeling is produced. And when you know that, it seems so obvious. So let's start with dopamine. An animal wakes up hungry in the morning. It looks for food. When it sees an opportunity to get food, dopamine turns on and says, wow, that will meet your needs. And each step closer triggers more dopamine. So when you see something that meets your needs, however you define it at that moment, you get that excitement of dopamine. And then if you get take action and get closer, each step closer triggers more dopamine. And then when you get it, the good feeling stops because it has already done its job. So um, oxytocin is what people like to think about that warm and fuzzy group feeling uh, that herd animals would have. 
But in, in the animal world, it's more complicated because animals, mammals have a lot of conflict within their groups. So they stick with the group in order to protect themselves from predators. So it's not just pure altruism. It's I want protection. And if you're honest with yourself, you could see that you look to others for protection and others look to you for protection. And when you have those bonding moments, it's because you feel like you can let down your guard the way a zebra lets down their guard when they're surrounded by their herd because the predator is going to eat someone else. With oxytocin, it stimulates that desire to be connected to somebody, but can also have a downside too, because you can affiliate yourself with the wrong person and the wrong relationships. Exactly. Or you could say that you could follow the crowd when you're better off not following the crowd. But we have this impulse to stay with the herd And it's literally true that the mammal that gets separated from the herd is quickly eaten by a predator, which explains that teenager's feeling of, wow, did everybody hang out without me? Not just teenagers. (laughs) So we have uh, dopamine, oxytocin, and then we have uh, serotonin. And what significance does that have? So this is the uncomfortable one because people don't like to admit their competitive feelings. But for over a century, biologists have understood that mammals have hierarchical groups and they invest every ounce of extra energy in trying to raise their status within the group in one way or another, it differs with species because that promotes their genes. It helps spread their genes. And they don't even know the genes exist, but they're rewarded with the good feeling of serotonin when they gain the position of strength. And you can see how humans are constantly trying to gain the position of strength and you get a good feeling when you do that. And you don't like to admit that, but you really notice when other people are trying to one-up you. And then we move on to the the last one, which is the endorphins, which most people have heard of, let's say from an exercising context, because people enjoy a runner's high. So again, what is the significance of that? Because it does involve the masking of pain, I read in, in the book. Exactly. So it's an opioid. In the animal world, if a tiger has its claws in you and rips your flesh open, you don't just freeze you run. How can you run when you're in pain? Because endorphin masks pain. So it masks pain with a feeling that we perceive as ecstatic. So we might be tempted to do things that stimulate it, but we are not meant to inflict pain on ourselves. It's only triggered by real physical pain and runners don't get high all the time. They only get it if they run to the point of pain that can have harmful long-term consequences. So we are designed to seek the others, but we're designed to have endorphin for emergency only. Okay, so you've mentioned animals there a few times. And on page 18 in your book, there's a terrific diagram and it compares the the human brain with that, uh, let's say, of a a chimpanzee, a a mouse and a lizard. And uh, by virtue of uh, how we have evolved, humans possess a reptilian brain, a mammalian brain and uh, obviously the cortex. And while we have bigger brains than, say, the mouse or the chimpanzee, we are still reliant on our mammalian brain in order to help us generate this elusive happiness. Sure, exactly. So our emotions are controlled by brain structures that we've inherited from earlier mammals, which are called 
which is called the limbic system. And it's things most people have heard of like the hippocampus and the amygdala. And they all work together to control your brain chemicals, but they cannot process language because they're not, because they're from animals. So the part of your brain that produces language, the unique human cortex, which is giant compared to animals, that is your conscious like narrating of what you think, but that doesn't control your chemicals. So we have two different brains and we have to train them to work together instead of thinking of one as the good guy and one as the bad guy. Now, in chapter three, you say that unhappy chemicals are nature's warning system or alarm system. Uh, what exactly are unhappy chemicals and uh, how do they warn us or alarm us? So I focus on cortisol, which most people have heard of as the stress chemical. Now, many other people ask me, well, what about adrenaline? And this is the emergency chemical, but sometimes there's a good emergency, like if you're bungee jumping or having a surprise party or something like that. So we have this initial alert, like pay attention, something's going on. And then when the something is defined as bad for you, that's the feeling of cortisol. So you may have a feeling of dread or doom or threat. And in nature, that's what gets an animal to run to save its life when it would rather just keep enjoying the grass. And the complication of our lives is whatever turned on your cortisol in your past paved a neural pathway that turns it on faster today. So everyone is going around like projecting the bad moments of their past onto their present situation. And with cortisol, we know the negative effects of long-term stimulation of cortisol on a, an ongoing basis. Yes, yes. And it's interesting to note our own power, like we are focusing on the negative and stimulating that chemical ourselves, but we're taught to blame it on the world like society makes me stressed or you make me stressed. But when we see that it's our old pathways that stress us, and we have the power to redirect them, then we can focus on um, survival relevant happy chemical. We as human beings are at the very top of that evolutionary chain. I mentioned the chimpanzees and the reptiles earlier, but the idea that we are animals competing with each other for food, for social status and looking for a mate, essentially always looking for an advantage so that we can pass on our genes. This is an idea that comes back again and again and again in the book. And it's not something I ever thought of really until I actually read this book. It really is all about passing on these genes. Yeah. So of course, nobody thinks that consciously. And even after people read the book, you know, many people are sort of offended by it. So I always suggest, well, if you look for it in others, you will see it immediately. <laughs> so it's just that we're uncomfortable seeing it in ourselves. So let's start with teenagers. And it's so helpful to know that our neuroplasticity peaks in adolescence. So I call it why it's always high school in your brain because that's when you're looking for that mating opportunity. And if you look for attention from that special someone and you don't get it, it feels like a survival threat, even though you don't consciously choose to think that, because if you watch David Attenborough's monkey videos, you see that really is 
like your genes will be wiped off the face of the earth if you're always at the bottom of the monkey hierarchy. And that's how it feels in a high school cafeteria. And that's what got frozen into your neural pathways. Is this the origin then, I presume, of catastrophizing things? Oh, very good. So uh, yes, that's a big part of catastrophizing. But another part of it is the very real threat that our ancestors lived with. Uh, Predator threat is a famous example of that. But also um, hunger threat, what's most relevant to our daily lives today, I call it risk reward. Like, let's say our ancestors had no water, and they had to decide, you know, I think there's water 10 miles over that hill. But if I make a a wrong choice, I could die of thirst if there's no water there. So I'm always weighing the risk of taking that path against the expected reward. And in the modern world where you're not going to die of thirst, then you're just weighing risk and reward all the time. And you think, oh, if I really work hard, I'll get that promotion. And then if you don't get the promotion, you're turning on that survival threat feeling that evolved to tell you that you were about to die of hunger and thirst. While the the chemical dopamine might very well be associated with happiness, it it can also bring uh, disappointment. And uh, to illustrate this disappointment effect, uh, you use the analogy of, let's say, having your first taste of an ice cream. Can you explain that phenomenon? Sure. So when I have the first lick of an ice cream, it's so good. And it really completely grabs your attention. Um, But you've all gone through this. Like by the time you're in the middle of that ice cream cone, you're thinking about what you're going to do next. And so really, you know, from the modern perspective of worrying about gaining weight, you'd be better off having a tiny bit of ice cream many times a day. And, And that's what I do. Like I would never eat like a whole ice cream at once, but I have a little bit now and a little bit later and I get that excitement. Now in nature, there was no ice cream. There was very few ways to get fat and sugar. And so that's why we surge with dopamine when we get rewards that are above average. And um, the big thing about the ice cream is not so much the reward because we have enough food in the modern world but it's looking forward to it. So if something goes wrong and you're in a bad mood and you're disappointed about something else, the minute you start thinking about the ice cream, your dopamine starts flowing and soon you can't think about anything else. You've got to get that ice cream. You get in the car, you look for a parking spot and each step triggers more dopamine as you get closer to the reward. The minute you have the dopamine and have that first step, The minute you have the ice cream, the dopamine stops. And this is the up and down treadmill frustrating aspect of life. And when you understand it, then you stop feeling like you have a disorder. It's just the way our brain is designed to work because in the state of nature, it was so hard to find uh, high high caloric foods. You see, I think your book was probably the first time that I really appreciated dopamine. It's about anticipation. Yes, and a big part of the of the anticipation is the distraction value, that if you use this anticipation when you're in a bad mood, then it converts a bad feeling to a good feeling, and that is nature's highest reward. And I always use the example that if you're a baboon and you smell a lion and you start to run and you climb up a tree, 
you're so thrilled to have escaped the threat that it wires, that thrill wires you to search for trees in the future. So if you have your, whatever your bad habit is, in a moment when you're feeling bad, it's going from the bad feeling to a good feeling. That's that extra boost that really uh, wires you to look for more of whatever gave you that extra boost. Baboons becoming big fans of trees for obvious reasons. Uh, now, in Chapter 5, uh, you talk about the brain's ability to build these neural pathways and, and this facilitates new habits with repetition, which we've spoken about, and emotion. What is it about emotion that makes this so significant? Well, I say that emotion is like paving on your neural pathways. Um, but what it's literally your brain signal that information is important. So a good feeling is important in that it wires you to seek that reward. And a bad feeling is important information because it wires you to avoid that threat. So emotions and information are the same thing. Emotions exist because they're the brain signal. Hey, pay attention to this because it's relevant to your survival. I mentioned at the outset that it will be of great comfort to my listeners to realise that we can actively control and promote the release of our own happy brain chemicals through our behaviours. And an example being if we want to build our, our serotonin circuits uh, that we simply express pride in something that we have done. Can you give some other examples of behaviours where we can give rise to the production of our own happy uh, brain chemicals? Sure. As you said, repetition, the value is that it builds a new pathway because we're all wired to seek our happy chemicals in whatever way triggered them in our unique individual past. So what you mentioned with serotonin expressing pride. Now, that may seem obnoxious, right? The person who goes around uh, tooting their own horn all the time. But each individual has that thing that they're proud of that helps them feel special. That urge to feel special is natural and normal and healthy, and yet we, we restrain it because each of us wants to be special but lives in a world of 7 billion other people who want to be special. So we have this pact of like, I'm willing to tolerate you if you'll, you know, you'll moderate your obsession with specialness while I moderate my obsession with specialness. Um, so the problem is some people get all of their feeling of specialness in this one particular way and don't see that there are thousands of other ways. And so we overindulge in that one particular way. So every one of us can just think about um, new possible sources of pride. Uh, just use a funny example. You might pride yourself on being able to hold more beers than the person at the table next to you. So it makes you feel good. And then when you up, you know, try to restrain how many beers you drink, then you lose your source of pride. So that's uh, just one of the conundrums that can be solved by having a new source of pride. But let's just say, for example, I always wanted to play the guitar, but when I pick up the guitar, I feel like I'm bad at it. And that doesn't give me a source of pride. But what my book explains is small steps trigger small amounts of happy chemicals. So if I make a pact with myself that I'm going to play the guitar for five minutes a day and turn on um, a timer 
So by the end of those five minutes, you are so proud of yourself for having done it, even though you didn't feel good when you started. And by repeating those five minute segments, you keep activating that pathway and build it um, so that it starts to feel natural. Okay, so we've talked about repetition, about establishing neural pathways in order to create good habits. This is the $6 million question. How do we break bad habits? The answer is always to substitute a new habit. So the simple famous example is a person who smokes cigarettes and they are told, you know, when you're in the mood for a cigarette, you should go out for a run. But if they liked running, they'd already be running. So running doesn't actually feel good to them. So my solution is to do something that feels good when you want a cigarette, but you want to find something that feels good that isn't harmful. Now that's the challenge. So what I say is um, like, let's say you'd love to read this novel or even watch sci-fi and you, are too proud to um, spend 10 minutes in the, in the middle of a day watching um, junk. But let's just say every, if you would have had a few cigarettes a day, give yourself just, let's say for the first six weeks that you're trying to build this neural pathway, you're gonna watch one hour of sci-fi a day or whatever is your passion. And you're gonna break it down with a timer, let's say, five minutes or 10 minutes, how long is a cigarette? Maybe seven minutes. So every time you would have had a cigarette, watch seven minutes of sci-fi and you're gonna look forward to it. You're gonna like it, you're gonna be happy about it. Now, at first you may say, I would rather have had a cigarette, but at least you're shifting your brain and then you're learning to notice it wasn't really about the cigarette. It was being able to shift your brain from whatever was bugging you to having a pleasant reward. Before I let you go, I I noticed at the beginning of the book that you dedicate to David Attenborough, and you mentioned him earlier on. I detect a huge admiration for him. Yes, especially his earlier series, because, and and it's not just um, the content, which is great, and the presentation, which is great, but it's the casualness with which he mentions this, which shows that in his time in the 70s and 80s, that this was just accepted fact. And now you never hear it. So since the age of the internet, there's been this um, new uh, ethos where animals are being represented as altruistic and empathetic. The conflict among animals is not talked about and not mentioned. But um, Attenborough reminds us of a time when it was acceptable to acknowledge that. I I suppose in in latter years, I think the whole notion of of the natural world has probably been a bit sanitized, maybe. Exactly. That's a perfect word for it. (laughs) Well, I do think you probably have something in common with David Attenborough, because I think you both have a similar mission in that you're trying to make science more accessible to the broader population. And uh, I think you've certainly managed that with this uh, terrific book. It's it's a fascinating exploration and it proves we can choose to practice our own happiness, but it is entirely up to us and our behaviours. Let me just give the book title again. It's The Habits of a Happy Brain. It's published by Simon and Schuster. It's available in bookshops and online. 
And you can also head over to uh, Professor Bruning's website, Inner Mammal Institute, all one word, dot org, for lots more information uh, and links to her very many books. And it's been such a joy to talk to you today. I know you're a very busy woman, so I appreciate you uh, speaking with me on the Happy Habit podcast today. And thanks for such great questions. Thank you.